0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Joel Jamison is widely considered one of the world's foremost authorities on strength and conditioning for many sports, having trained many of the best athletes since 2004. He is the author of the best-selling book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. He is a contributing writer to several top magazines and is a frequent guest speaker at conferences and seminars all over the world. He is best known for an individualized approach that is based both on solid science and yet practical to apply. Joel created 8 Weeks Out in 2009 to help clear up the misinformation and confusions surrounding energy systems. Since then, the site has become one of the authorities on strength, conditioning, and performance. Joel is a longtime enthusiast of heart rate variability, and his Morpheus app allows users to aggregate assorted training and lifestyle factors, including HRV, to auto-generate a recovery score. Joel has worked with and consulted extensively for teams and organizations such as the Navy SEALs, and his heart rate variability system is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more, which is the topic we will be exploring today. Joel Jamison, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. So I was introduced to you and your concepts and heart rate variability almost a decade ago when you started working directly with the company that I was working for. I was in charge of all the um, metabolic testing and also all the different devices, so heart rate monitors and and all kinds of tools that we were using. And so it was my job to really learn how to use those things up and down, and then teach all the other trainers. And part of the tool that we were given was the book that's sitting behind me, the Ultimate Guide to HRV Training, which you wrote. And even the trainers that were resistant. To to HRV and using it with their clients. I implored them to get this book. This book is definitely about HRV and it's definitely in the title, but it is way deeper than just an HRV book. This goes way in depth into all kinds of training and training systems and ideas and how to build programs. You did an excellent job building this book, man. Great job.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those projects I started where kind of my, my original goal was just kind of write about HRV, but the more you get into it, the more you really have to talk about how to actually use HRV because HRV in a vacuum by itself is is meaningless. It's really about how you use HRV to achieve your goals faster and more effectively and and reach whatever it is you're striving to do. So in order to help people do that, I really just kind of kept going down these layers of programming, like you said, and how to use HRV in the process. So it turned into definitely a more, you know, more thorough book on, programming than I expected, but I think uh, as you said, it, it was crucial for people understanding and using HRV that it's it's what made it a good book.
0: Yeah. Some of the, the, the um, images that you have in the book makes, you know, understanding stress and adaptation so easy and, and helps you really design. Like, what am I doing? Not only this week, but this month and the next three months, how do I plan some of these things? I, when I was using it the most, I was actually speed skating. So I'm about 10 minutes away from the Olympic oval here in Salt Lake city, Utah, where the U S Olympic team trains. And I was using that to help manage my own personal training when I was doing some pretty heavy speed skating. I was shocked that not more of the, of the skaters there we're using this as a tool. That to me was like a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, when you when you really dive into HRV, it's, a, it's a, such a multifaceted tool because even though it's just a single number, that, that one number can give you so much information. And it, it really, I think at the core of what it does is it helps eliminate a lot of the guesswork because if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of fitness, training, nutrition, all of it, most people are just guessing and, and some people are making more educated guesses than others but it's the lack of information that really forces you to guess because what, what are you going to do if you don't have good information? And that's really the role of HRV. I'm sure we can dig into this, but it's, it's just a tool to give you some concrete, objective information about what your body is doing in response to the world around it. And then you can use that information to make better decisions. And that's all training really is. It's a series of decisions about volume, intensity, exercise selection, uh, periodization, and, and the same thing applies to the rest of you know, lifestyle, how many calories, what foods, sleep, all, all these things are just, they're just decisions we make every day. A lot of them we make subconsciously, but you know, whether we move closer to our goals or further away from them is nothing more than what sort of decisions we make over and over again. Yeah. And, and that's where HRV comes in.
0: That's a really interesting point. I love that. Let's do dive into HRV. It's 2022. You must be, uh, you must be a little bewildered by the availability of, of at least, you know, either HRV or something like it on most people's devices. We're now in a world where, you know, you can access some of this stuff quite a bit easier than when you first started with it. Is that right? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, when I first started, look, it was, it was early 2000s. It was a $35,000 laptop that I, that I basically finagged my way into being able to use. And you had to connect a bunch of electrodes to people. It was awkward and cumbersome and expensive and time-consuming, and you know that's all there really was there there was really no mobile apps back then there wasn't bluetooth There was none of that stuff so to go from that to where we are today you know on millions of phones and apple i mean yeah all those things are you know it's amazing progression i think the the unfortunate thing is as hrv has been commercialized it's really been made um i guess just that commercialized it's become a little bit watered down i would say the education piece is missing with a lot of these these apps and platforms the accuracy, unfortunately, leaves a lot to be desired. Many of them, because people have really prioritized ease of use uh, over accuracy and really good quality data. So we can talk about that. But uh, yeah, back in the early, you know, I say two thousand five, two thousand ten. You know, I was talking to HRV a lot, talking different conferences, and I'd ask people how many people you know had heard of HRV, and nobody's hand, Maybe a couple of people's hand would would go up occasionally, but it was something that just didn't exist. People didn't know what it was, and now it's everywhere. So if I ask the same question, a lot of people raise their hands. But if I ask, you know, how many of you feel like you really have a good idea of how to use it, it's kind of the same thing. It's not very many. So it's it's out there. It's gained significant notoriety and and acceptance. But again, I think it's it's lacking in the application side.
0: Yeah. How do you explain HRV to people when they ask, like, what are you talking about? What is this? What do you tell them?
1: Yeah, I basically try to start with this idea of stress. Right? Stress is. Essentially, what we put our body under from the moment we're, we're born to the moment we're not. And as we progress through our lives, our body is under all kinds of stress, whether that's the mental stress of dealing with work and family, uh, whether that's the stress of the environment, be outside hot or cold, whether that's training stress, you know, nutritional, there's all kinds of stress we impose upon our body. And HRV is a tool to allow us to gauge how our body is responding to that in both the short run and the long run. So a lot of what it's doing is telling us the cost of that total stress. And we see when we're under a lot of stress, we see big changes in HRV. When we're under less stress, we see smaller changes in HRV. And over time, if we become more resilient, better at handling stress, we see our HRV score gradually start to go up to reflect that. So if you really wanna get a nitty gritty, we talked about autonomic nervous system and how all that works, which we can do. But just as a broad understanding, it's giving us a very good gauge of how much stress our body is under and thus how it's reacting to that stress. And we can see that largely by the changes on a daily basis. So again, bigger changes away from kind of where we're normally at means more stress. Smaller changes mean less stress. And then again, we can look at over time to see where our number is trending. If it's going up, we're generally becoming more stress resilient, more well conditioned and improving our ability to tolerate that stress. If our number is going down, it generally means the opposite so that's kind of the big picture nutshell and then from there you can dive into the the actual nuts and bolts of of the odd knock nervous system and the you know mechanics of what it's actually showing you
0: No, you make a really good point i think a lot of listeners might say like wait a second you said hot and cold are both stresses you guys are telling us that infrared saunas are really good or cold plunges are really good and it's like no mm-hmm. that they are they are stresses it's just another form of stress it's like a workout like like work at you, you leave the gym in way worse shape than when you enter the gym, you're breaking yourself down and tearing yourself up. It's only that adaptation phase where you're, you know, building yourself up and you do such a great job in the book kind of explaining that. But yeah, let's talk about the autonomic um, nervous system. I think that'd be great to go into those two hemispheres and how they interact with each other. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't have to sit here and think about my, my pH, my blood. I I don't have to sit here and think about my body temperature, right? All, all that's regulated internally. And what's corely responsible for that is the autonomic nervous system, which there are two branches. Uh, the first is the sympathetic system. People always think of this one as the fight or flight. And just like its name implies, its job is to crank up energy production for fight or flight. So if I'm going to go lift weights, or if I'm going to go do sprints, if I'm going to do any kind of workout, boom, I need that sympathetic system to crank up the energy production so I can go produce more force, more power, and I can do that. Now, from a biological perspective, this system is what kept us alive and able to be here today as an evolutionary mechanism, because if you're in the wild, you need to go hunt something or you're being hunted yourself. You better be able to do that very quickly and have that power right when you need it. So that's essentially how the system works to generate energy. Really, what we can think of is anything that causes that system to activate is is a stressor. And there are degrees, right? Like being chased for your life in the wild is a extreme stressor sitting there watching a stressful TV show may not feel like an extreme stressor, but your heart rate's still going up. That system's still activating because we are able to activate that stress response from a, uh, from a mental perspective. It doesn't have to be purely physical. That's why we have mental stress raise our heart rate. Now the, the other side of that coin is what's called the parasympathetic system, which people might be a little bit less familiar with, but we can think of that as the rest and digest or rest and repair, rest and regenerate, whatever you want to call it. And it's basically the opposing or, you know, um, System that works in pair with the sympathetic, and it does largely the opposite. So it helps rebuild and restock glycogen stores when we deplete them through our exercise or other forms of stress. It is repairing tissues, is remodeling everything, it's making it bigger, stronger, uh, strengthening immunity, all those sorts of things, helping us digest our food. So, you know, people have probably heard these terms anabolic and catabolic. The sympathetic system is catabolic, right? It's, it's breaking down stored energy or energy that's in the bloodstream. So we have it available right now. And the parasympathetic system is anabolic. It's rebuilding tissue. It's taking energy and storing it in the form of protein or glycogen in different areas of the body. And it's what's rebuilding all the things we've done to ourselves during that stressful period. So the balance between these two systems is absolutely crucial, right? And I don't want to make it sound like stress is bad. Stress in and of itself is a powerful tool that helps build our body. And it's how our body goes through life is by being exposed to stress and adapting to it and hopefully getting more resilient, better. We need stress. It's how we build the body in general. But when that balance between stress and recovery is not there, and particularly when that balance is shifted towards the, the stress side for too long, that's when a lot of bad things really start to happen from a health standpoint, performance standpoint, physique standpoint, all those things cascade. Um, and so the biggest thing people have to realize is because stress is all-encompassing, right? Like we talked about, it's mental stress, physical stress, nutritional stress, environmental stress, those are all additive, right? They they don't cancel each other out. They are all additive and we have to make sure that our body is able to counteract and recover from all that stress. And that's ultimately what HRV helps us do by monitoring that parasympathetic nervous system. It's essentially looking not at the stress side, but at the recovery response side, it's looking at that parasympathetic nervous system and how active it is and how much of a role it's playing in trying to help our body recover. And by, Looking at that, we can gauge how much stress we've been under, because if we see a very high or very low HRV, that tells us our body's in the process of responding to something that was very stressful. And these days, most apps will kind of do the math for you. They'll look at your numbers and give you some gauge of recovery, like Morphus and other ones. So they've, they've made it a little bit easier in the sense they don't just expect you to interpret all the HRV data, but it is still valuable, I think, to understand the big picture, what you're looking at, regardless of how deep that you know down that rabbit hole you want to go.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So maybe this is the wrong question, but in a perfect world, would we be perfectly balanced between the sympathetic and parasympathetic? And it's just that our current circumstances and lifestyles typically for most people are way too sympathetic and way, way not parasympathetic enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you want to look at it in the way, the way that the body works and the way that, I, you know, when you look at HIV, you see it's it's cyclic, right? You see people go through periods period of stress, and then you want that stress to subside so they can recover from that stress, and then they expose themselves to more stress. And that's, that's a training process in a nutshell, right? That's literally kind of how we are, are built progressive overload. So in a perfect world, you're going through these stress recovery cycles. And you can look at this in a very short time frame or a very long time frame. And over time, as long as your body is spending enough time recovering from the stress you're putting it under, that's going to lead to positive changes. Your body is going to get stronger, more resilient. Uh, Your work capacities can go up. You just become more able to cope with that stress. You get better at it. But if we see this imbalance, like I said, then you go the other direction and the body is not able to spend as much energy repairing itself as it's spending it dealing on stress. Because that's kind of the second big thing people need to recognize here is energy is a limited thing here we don't have this unending amount of metabolic energy that we can create every single day there's limits to it because it takes time to create energy it takes resources internally to create energy and doesn't doesn't happen unending so if we're spending you know a huge amount of energy on dealing with that stress every day then there's less available afterwards for the recovery piece of it particularly if we're not sleeping we're not supporting ourselves nutritionally all those sorts of things so that's really what it comes down to it's it's how much energy do we devote towards, both sides of the equation, and in a perfect world, yes, you would devote as much resources on the recovery side as you need, because that's going to depend on how much stress you put your body under. But it's it's when you don't do that, it's when you put your body under a lot of stress, and then you don't subsequently meet those recovery needs, and you do that process over and over again that you go down the wrong uh, hole and you end up in you know bad spot. And really, the thing with modern society, I would say, is sleep is a big problem because we're most anabolic and we're most in that recovery state when we're sleeping. A lot of people don't get enough sleep. They don't get enough good quality sleep. It's nutrition, you know, same thing that supports it hugely. And then it's the mental stress factor. And today's life is stressful and people, uh, you know, again, don't realize how much adds together. So if I'm stressed out during the day, that can impact my sleep and lack of sleep impacts my food decisions. It's all tied together. So it's, again, kind of looking at this big picture of how we go about our daily lives and decisions we make that is such a huge piece of putting all the pieces together.
0: Yeah, definitely. And if we we zoom in a little bit and talk about fitness, it appears to me that the timing would be so important to understand. Where are you in your phase of recovery? Because if you've got a hard workout and you do another hard workout too soon, maybe you haven't fully adapted to the last one, and you're going to bury yourself even more. Or the mm-hmm. opposite example: I do a hard workout, but I just don't ever do it frequently enough. I'm never really going to gain significant fitness by doing that. And so, really, that timing is so critical to understand.
1: It is. Yeah. Look, I, I try to get people to understand training in these these pictures of stress and recovery cycles so if i load my body up let's say monday and a tuesday i need to give myself a chance to recover from that because if i just keep loading myself all week long and i take the weekend off that's really not enough time to recover if i put myself under enough load throughout the middle of the week and so people kind of get themselves in one two scenarios either constantly overload themselves and never quite recover so they eventually go down this overtraining plateau you know chronic injury standpoint or They get this point where they're training at a fairly high volume, but they're, but the intensity, the, you know, the stress isn't as high as it actually needs to be in any given workout to really cause the body to have to adapt. So then these people just kind of hit plateaus. Like they're just going to the motion, they're putting in the work, but they're not really seeing improvement. They're just kind of stuck in this pattern of this moderate loading because they're doing so much of it and they're not able to ever fully recover to the point they can put in the amount of load they need to. So it is. It is really about finding that pattern. That how much stress can I put my body under, and then how long does it take it for recovery to recover, and then re, you know how often can I repeat that? And the more stress recovery cycles you go through, the better you're going to be. You know, yeah. Most people, you know, one stress recovery cycle for a week is is reasonable if they have you know full time jobs and they're stressed out. They they probably can go through one good loading period and one good recovery period. If they have their lifestyle a bit more together, they're getting you know eight plus hours of sleep, their nutrition's pretty well dialed in, they're they're taking you know control of mental stress and doing things to mitigate it, then too, you can do two stress recovery cycles. You can kind of do this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday stress recovery cycle, and then you can do a Thursday, Friday, Saturday stress recovery cycle, take Sunday off. So I call it train recover repeat, and I kind of teach those models. They call it the one, two, three or the two, two, two. So there, there's endless ways to load it, but it's just about thinking about that process before you go. Loading your body. Make sure you have thought about the recovery angle of things, not just the training part of it.
0: Yeah, I love that, and I think we 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 really just don't think about the recovery enough. I'm always surprised, you know, when I see endurance athletes in particular that are, are chronically just doing marathons, half marathons, Ironman. We, at, at some point, they'll end up getting injured, and it, it literally can take months and months not only to recover from the injury, but to recover from the, the chronic stress load. It takes a long time to kind of get that back. if you been at this for several years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the body basically has stress coping mechanisms, right? And we want those mechanisms to work for us and build the body, make it more resilient. But it also has mechanisms that are going to work against us. And that, if we keep overloading our body with chronic stress, it starts to downregulate and change a bunch of hormones, hormonal receptors. It decreases immunity and does all kinds of stuff to where chronic inflammation becomes uh, just a hallmark of how our bodies are, are functioning And it causes lots of problems. I mean, again, chronic injuries and plateaus and everything else, worsening health, all these things are just, they're just the result of this chronic imbalance over weeks or months. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't turn around overnight. It's not like you flip a switch, you know, take some, take a few days off and boom, your body's back to normal. I mean, if you spend weeks or months overloading your body in that state, it's going to take weeks at least and maybe months to get it back to some sort of normalcy. I think that's kind of the, we're, we're wired to think like, Oh, I can just, You know, change and it's all magically back to normal. Well, you put the body, like, it's like you took your car and you revved it, you know, full go and you just beat the hell out of your car, did no maintenance. Like, you can't do one oil change and now your car's good. Like, you still did all that damage that you probably have to pay some parts and you're going to have to, you know, fix what you broke. And that's going to take time and money. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen instantly, unfortunately, and the longer you've damaged it, the longer it's probably going to take to recover from it.
0: Yeah. I love that analogy. That's very well explained. So the listener may have gathered at this point, heart rate variability. So there is some variance in heart rate and this yep. is normal. I, I, I don't know if a lot of people consider that when your heart rate is 60, it's not really ever like 60. It can be 57, 56. It can go up to 62, 63. It, it does change up and down. So can you explain what what heart rate variability is measuring and how the sure. heart is responding differently? in a parasympathetic versus sympathetic state
1: yeah so if we measure a heart rate at rest uh like you said it doesn't it doesn't beat like a metronome so if it says 60 it doesn't mean that it's beating exactly every one second like that's not actually what's happening and if we were to take out the parasympathetic system entirely you kind of have this intrinsic heart rate of about 100 beats per minute so most people if you were to just disconnect the parasympathetic nervous system theoretically most people's heart rate would just crank along about hundred beats per minute and it would be fairly regular, but that's just not how we're built. So we do have the parasympathetic nervous system. It, it basically innervates and plays a role with the heart rate speeding up and slowing down. So as the parasympathetic system is active, it slows the heart rate down. And as it becomes less active, the heart rate speeds back up. So it's this conic, it's this constant impulse from the parasympathetic nervous system that you kind of think of tugging on the heart rate. So it's speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down. And what we see, when we look at heart rate on the you know watch is, is the aggregate, kind of the average of what it's doing over time as we're measuring it. So somebody with a stronger parasympathetic nervous system is gonna see bigger decreases. They're gonna have lower heart rate as a result. And what we're basically measuring is how variable is it? And again, greater variability means that the parasympathetic system is tugging harder on the heart rate to slow it down. Now we also change our heart rate resting as a whole based on the cardiovascular system. So endurance athletes, people with bigger left ventricles, they can pump out more blood. Their heart beats fewer times per minute because it's pumping out more blood with each beat. So that obviously plays a role in our general resting heart rate as well. But again, what we're doing is we're measuring the heart rate over time and then there's some math that's being done in the background to look at how much that parasympathetic system was active by looking at how variable that heart rate was across the measurement period. And again, greater variability, meaning like you said, it's, it's more variable and how it's changing means higher level of parasympathetic function is at play. So where you see higher heart rate variability in that case.
0: Yeah. Very well explained. So how does one take this measurement? Is there a special time of day? Do they need special equipment? Like what do people need and when do they do it and how long does it take?
1: Yeah, no, this is, this is really the most important point. And this is where I think in some ways, HRV has jumped the shark, so to speak. So there are two ways you can measure HRV, all right? One I would call active and one I would call passive. Now, HRV has been around for 50, 60 plus years. It was it was first kind of pioneered in the Soviet Union in their space program and it was used in the medical realm across uh, essentially a lot of their sciences for many years. In the 80s, they pioneered using sports programs. I mean, it's been around for a long, long time And the way it's been done primarily in research is with EKG leads and, you know, either measuring people overnight with 12 full leads or typically these shorter measurements from, you know, two to five minutes in in a rested state. And the reason that you want to do that is because you want to see where the body is at in the same context. So, for example, if I was going to say, hey, my goal is to lose body weight, I'd probably want to wake up each morning and weigh myself in the same conditions and see where I'm at. And then look at that number over time. If I see changes from one day to the next, that tells me something. And that's called act, that's an active measurement. That means I have to actively measure HRV. And the systems today, like Morpheus, it's usually a two to four minute process from start to finish to measure that. But because you are measuring a standardized condition every day, you're seeing this dynamic picture of how the body is changing. And that, so the plus side to this is, this is how virtually all the research, you know, 99% plus of the research has been done on HRV has been done using this active measurement protocol. They actually measure you over a certain period of time, then take the results. So they standardize that. The flip side of that is what's being done by a lot of wearables now. And that's just passive measurement, meaning it just happens in the background beyond your control, whether it's taking little measurements overnight while you're sleeping, or it's happening throughout the day, or you don't know when it's measuring it, which is the case in a lot of these. Now the the advantage to that is you don't have to sit there and spend any time measuring it. It's just a very convenient, like, I don't think about it. I just get a number on a screen. That's my HIV number. The downside is it's not very accurate because it depends on what you're doing and you're not measuring the standardized you know, context each day. It'd be like weighing yourself some days after a meal and some days after you drank a gallon of water. Next time you're like weighing yourself, you know, eight o'clock at night versus six o'clock in the morning, you just see noise in the system because you're not standardizing when you were actually measuring it. So... While these systems are designed to be more convenient, they're also designed inherently to be far less accurate because there's just too much information that's causing the changes that isn't standardized, So that makes sense. So I would personally highly recommend if you're going to measure HRV, you want to use something like Morpheus or other systems out there that are also using this active measurement because it's just going to give you much more accurate data, much more accurate reflection of how your body is changing over time. So. You know, you're going to want to spend that two or three minutes. Ideally, you measure it relatively early in the morning. You want to measure it before you have caffeine or before you put yourself through a workout. Because again, think of it as the wake up, check my body weight thing. I want to see where I'm at in the morning before I eat a bunch of food so I can see where I'm at in that state every morning. So I really personally recommend get yourself in a habit. And I personally weigh myself every morning. I take my HRV and I have that data. And then I go about my day and it helps me center myself and think about what I want to do today, right? It helps me make a decision about, okay, here's where I'm at today. Here's what I had planned. Should I do that or not? Or should I make an adjustment? And body weight is also a good one to look at. I think personally, I think body weight is underrated to look at every day because it also reflects all kinds of things we're doing to ourselves and it helps people make better decisions. So I think if you're, if you're you know, going to invest the time in HRV and the money to get, do it, do it right. You know, measure it first thing in the morning, be as consistent as you possibly can. You know, weigh yourself or take other sort of measurements along with it, and you'll be in a much better position to have really good data to make decisions from. Because data is only as good as its accuracy. It's it's not worth anything if it's completely inaccurate because it can help you make poor decisions instead of right the right decisions because it's it's leading you in the wrong direction. So, um, you know, again, that's that's the biggest part about HRV is is getting accurate data, and and that's why I'm so firmly uh, on the side of making sure you're you're doing in active format and you're getting good high quality data to make good decisions from.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I actually didn't realize that a lot of of wearables were doing it that way and didn't have like a set time that they were measuring. That would make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, well, here's the unfortunate thing too, is a lot of the more popular ones, they're just measuring overnight. And so they they, they give this impression that, well, okay, we're standardizing it by measuring it throughout your entire sleeping cycle, but they're not. And the reason they're not is because it would destroy your batteries and those wearables because it takes a fair amount of battery power to take an optical sensor and measure HRV at a high def resolution for eight hours, it would kill your battery. So they're taking little samples. They're just periodically sampling. But again, these periodic little samples totally depends if you're laying your stomach versus laying your side versus laying your back. I mean, all of these different variables of, of how you're sleeping can change your HRV dramatically. So they're they're just not getting good enough high quality data to have any real daily uh, utility. I mean, I would say. Yeah, sure. If, if we measure HRV using these tools and we see six months later, your averages are much higher. Yeah, you probably improved. But on a daily basis, the number you're getting is is junk most of the time.
0: Yeah. So interesting. I do want to go back and I hope that you and all the listeners had the same visual that I had. You're referencing Russia in the eighties. I'm just picturing Ivan Drago, like all hooked up and getting HRV yeah. measurements. From yeah. I mean, War. they actually,
1: so they actually use it in, in the first, uh, the first Soviet space, the first, uh, person in space, Yuri yeah. Gagarin they, they were able to beam down the heart rate signal. And then from that signal, they could interpolate what HRV was. And they, they had, they, they want to understand as we still want to understand how stress, uh, of space affects the human body. And this was one of the tools they could have available to do that way back when. So it like, it has been around for a long, long time. It's, it may be new to the fitness world, but it's been a metric that's been used in, in medicine circles and research for decades.
0: Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So we want to take active measurements. What kind of equipment do we need? Um, it, it, this was a few years ago, so I don't know if they've improved, but there were certain heart rate monitors that you could use that would definitely give you reliable data, and there were others that were pretty much junk. What, is, yep. Has anything changed that way? Or are there certain brands or ways to measure that work better than others? Sure.
1: Yeah, so look, there's there's two broad types of heart rate sensors out there. All right, One is a chest strap, which most people are familiar with. It, it's using electrical signals. To calculate what's called the rr interval and the rr interval is literally just the time between each heartbeat so you can't measure hrv unless you get an rr interval now some chest straps will calculate and send that data so that an app can read it and some chest straps do not so polars typically do you know some garments do some garments don't not every chest trap is going to make that data available so Any app or HRV tool you're using, unless it's connected to a chest strap that's sending that RR Emerald data, it's not going to be able to get HRV. So that's number one. But the plus side to chest straps is they are the most accurate way to measure HRV. Chest straps are the most accurate way to train, the most accurate measure HRV. They're just the most accurate because they're using electrical signals and it's a very accurate way to measure. They can measure HRV to plus or minus about one millisecond, which is highly accurate. Now, and the other category is what's become much more popular these days, which are optical sensors, right? And now, instead of using electrical sensors, they're basically sending light through the skin, and they're measuring how much that light comes back and how it reflects. And from that, they're using you know a bunch of math to basically figure out your heart rate and your RR interval from that. So as you can imagine, it's a bit less accurate. It depends also on skin tone. It becomes less accurate as you move around. It gets what are called motion artifacts. So it's overall less accurate than chest straps but that accuracy really depends on which sensor you're talking about so morpheus uses a sensor by a company called balance which is the most well-validated sensor but other people are using you know two dollar sensors that are china that are just junk honestly they're they're cheaper they're lower cost them to use but they've never been validated the rr detection is not very good and they're more prone to problems so there's a really there's a much wider discrepancy in accuracy on optical sensors and there are chest wraps, most chest wraps, they're going to be accurate. They're chest straps, but optical sensors you wear on your wrist. It's a crap shoot. Some will be fairly decent and most will be kind of shitty to be honest with you. Yeah. And there's no great way to tell if you're that you're an average consumer. So you really want to look at, you know, Morpheus is a brand that I create. Obviously I, I've created that uh, on the science and the credibility of the sensor we're using. If you're going to look at other, sensors devices you know see who they've worked with if there's any actual research validating if they say what sensor they're using if you know there's any sort of accuracy that's been benchmarked on that on that device you know any sort of thing like that now the other thing i'll say is we can consider so two train scenario two scenarios the first is measuring hrv which needs to be done at rest okay absolutely has to be done at rest so both sensors can be used like you can definitely use a chest strap and you can use an optical sensor provided it's a good one now, when it comes to training, the same kind of stuff applies. If I'm doing high-intensity workouts, if I'm changing direction, doing high speed stuff, a chest strap is the way to go. Like you might think it's less comfortable, but it's going to be far more accurate than most optical sensors because optical sensors, like I said, you're moving your wrist around, you're getting motion artifacts in there. It's having some much has a much harder time reading accurately at higher heart rates. So if you're using you know, a heart rate during a workout, you really want a chest strap for higher intensity, high velocity, change of direction type movements, and exercise, if you're just kind of going out for a casual jog, or you're riding a bike, you're doing something that's a little bit more uh, stationary or less jarring, and it's not as high intensity, then some of the better optical sensors can work. The Apple Watch is actually uh, pretty decent there, you know, Garmin and Polar make optical sensors for your wrist are reasonably accurate, but really it just it comes down to what are you doing. And as long as you're Uh, doing something lower intensity sure optical sensors are fine but again when you crank the intensity up you want to go with a chest strap and this is why morpheus essentially offers both we have a chest strap for training and then we have an optical sensor on the wrist for the HRV measurement. So yeah. it really kind of, you know, make sure you're, make sure you're using the right tool for the job, I guess, is the bottom line.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm going to throw some brands under the bus here. I don't care. Um, <laughs> You know, when we would, when we would do metabolic testing at the gym that I was at, we'd be measuring heart rate. And so we got to validate this really, really well. And we used straps mm-hmm. that weren't based on the wrist. They were kind of on the arm. I know the Morpheus has an option yep. for that as well. That was certainly much more accurate. The The, the numbers there seemed to match up really well. Um, I will yep. confirm what you said about apple watch i i never really saw huge issues with apple watches they seem to give like really good ratings it was the fitbits and garments man the fitbits and garments that had the wrist-based optical sensor The the variance Euro. could be 20 30 beats and when you're exercising and trying to stay in a certain zone like that's 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 a huge difference
1: it is i mean it yeah there, there's a really big variance like i said the quality of the sensors that they're using and apple Number one, they use good components because they can. They have expensive devices, uh, but number two, I think they've probably developed the best algorithms for smoothing out some of the data. Um, and yeah, the, for for just general for just general purposes, I would say Apple probably is the the top or one of the best. And then, like I said, below that, it's a you All you got to do to see it is, is wear a chest strap and then wear an optical sensor and look at the two different data points. And sometimes you'll see twenty beats difference, thirty beats difference. I mean some of these things are just so far off. It's, it's insane. And they've done stuff. I looked at a couple of papers where they had people literally go a marathon distance and they looked at the discrepancy and total uh, distance covered using these things. And some of them were off by like two to three miles, four miles. That's so crazy. there's, yeah, they can be way far off. Wow. Um, and then people also need to understand sleep is another category here. There's a lot of kind of, I don't know if junk science is the word, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of devices claiming they're doing more than they're actually doing. So no device is actually measuring sleep. We, we're not; it's not capable of measuring sleep. It's inferring sleep, basically, by looking at your heart rate, by looking at how much you're moving, uh, that kind of stuff. It's it's guessing basically if you're asleep or not based on those things. It's not able to measure anything concretely, and so some of these devices are pretty good at that. Um, and some of those are are less good at that. But what they're not really capable of doing in a high level accuracy is sleep stages. Like you're not really getting true sleep stage data from a wearable. They're just guessing based on these changes in heart rates. and some like they are, are better than others. But we just have to understand, like you know there's there's limitations to all this stuff. and it, it doesn't have to be, 100% accurate to be useful, but just be aware of, of the limitations of it.
0: That's a great point. I, I got to just tell you this. I know a lot of the wearables now for sleep are you know the rings or the straps or the wrist-based things. My, my favorite one that was ridiculous it was something you put on your forehead, around your forehead. And oh, yeah, it, I've seen that one. You see that one? And yeah, I don't know how, I don't know what it was measuring and how it was measuring it. It didn't matter anyway because it would end up off my head and often off the bed or it, around my foot or something. Like It would end up in all kinds of weird spots. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really matter.
1: yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of the problem, right, is, is people want to measure data and they kind of went in this, this, you know, like, let's measure everything we possibly can. And so people are measuring 10 different things with 10 different devices. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you don't need 10 different things, you just need to get the right data measured accurately, and then know what it's telling you, and learn from that, you know, that's, that's kind of the biggest thing is, you should get to the point where you have a pretty reasonable idea of what your body's going to do based on what you did, if you spend enough time really looking at what happens as you train the more you use hrv uh, the more you look at the data from the workout itself the more you weigh yourself you should have a pretty good gauge as you go of okay i think this is what my body is going to look like tomorrow and be pretty spot on most of the time not all the time but we should be constantly striving to learn how our body reacts to what we do to it because that helps you tremendously again make better decisions if if you know what your body's going to do or at least have a pretty good idea then you make smarter decisions about it. And, hey, if I know if I eat this right now, you know my 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 weight's probably going to go up tomorrow. If I keep doing that, it's not going the way I want it to go. So I would say that the number one thing that anyone can do, I don't care if they're an elite level athlete or they're just trying to be healthy, it's it's learn your body and how your own unique body responds to the stress of life, to the stress of training, to nutrition, and everything else in between. So whether you have a coach or not, you've got to learn how your body reacts to the world around it. And that's ultimately, you're the only person that can do it. But that is the most important thing, in my opinion, to getting long-term results because it, it allows you to stop making just uneducated guesses and start to make you make really well-informed decisions.
0: I love that. That is awesome. Very well explained. It, when, I'm, when I'm gathering data from somebody, especially in the beginning, I, I don't really care what they're doing and what they're changing I just want to gather data like the first year that somebody's training for a marathon I I, I don't know what is your optimal pace what is your optimal heart rate I, I don't know I, what are your recovery times all of that is going to vary it's in the second and third and fourth years when you've collected <coughs> so much data that now I can see you relative to you and understand what things have changed and then we can w- way better manipulate a training program to help people do better in the future like you said make better decisions HRV exactly. is, is, is the same way correct you need to get some baseline measurements before you can then get some information about it?
1: Yeah, usually like a week or two where it'll establish. It depends on how the device you're using or app you're using is calculating. But you know, a week or two is a good starting point before you start to pay a little bit more attention to what it's telling you. Now, again, we, when we use HRV, we look at two directions or two points of it. At least we should be. The first, like I said, is daily basis. So on, on a daily basis, it should look at how far away we are from our norm or what our HRV is doing relative to what it usually does. And then give us some indication of what a recovery is. Now, it's really important to talk about recovery. What, what is recovery actually measuring? So again, it's kind of like sleep. Like you know, HRV is not a direct gauge of you know muscle biopsies or or hormone status or like we're not going in the body to measure things. So we're inferring recovery by how much energy our body is devoting towards it through the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's doing its best to estimate what recovery is, but recovery is not quite what people tend to think it is. Okay. People think like, Oh, I'm highly recovered. Therefore I can lift heavy weights and I'm going to sprint my fastest and I'm going to perform my best. When I'm highly recovered. I'm going to perform my worst when I'm poorly recovered. They kind of have this instant idea that recovery is directly connected to what their body is capable of at any point in time. It's not really that recovery again is where our body is directing its resources. And when we see, lower recovery it's because our body is pushing a lot of energy towards recovery because it hasn't gone through this full stress recovery process in other words it means it's it's a gauge of how much energy we have left in the tank to continue to adapt to what we're going to throw at it so if our recovery is low and we train a lot it's going to take even longer to get back to normal from that. It's, it's basically we've dug ourselves a hole and we go train again we're digging that hole even deeper if our recovery starts much higher it says hey you're probably not a whole start with so this workout's gonna dig a much less deep hole because you're not starting from a hole to begin with. That makes sense. So I tend to tell people looking at recovery is more about a, a, a gauge of how long it's gonna take you to recover back to baseline from this workout. If your recovery is really low, it's gonna take you a long time. If your recovery is really high, it's gonna take you less time. So it's just a, a better way to think about it, not in terms of how much you know is my body capable of, but what should I do today to make my body be able to go through the stress recovery process effectively? Because if I do a high intensity, high volume workout, I'm already under a lot of stress. My recovery is low. It might take three to four days to get back to a normal state. If I, you know, rest or do lower work. If I start at a much higher standpoint, I might be back to normal in a day or two, which means I can train more frequently. So we just have to look at recovery from that perspective and make decisions accordingly.
0: So from that perspective, is it always better to have a higher number?
1: I mean. Yes and no. It, it, we want to put our body under enough stress that right, we're having to adapt to it. If our recovery is essentially always high and we're never really seeing a deviation away from that, it means we're probably not overloading our body enough to cause it to improve. So again, you want to essentially see these stress recovery cycles in action. And I can show you plenty of cases where you, you can see it pretty clearly. If we load our body, you know, it should take a couple of days of body devoting energy towards recovery, repair. And then we repeat that and then you'll see the body basically go through that process of lower recovery, back up to normal, lower recovery, back up to normal. It's just a question of, you know, how many times do you do that effectively versus, okay, it's lower. Then I do a kind of a half ass workout and it doesn't come all the way back up. And then I do a high intensity workout, boom, I drive it back down. And you kind of go through this weekly process where you never really let it come back to normal. And you do that over and over again. That's where people get themselves into trouble. So you want to overload your body so that it has to adapt and then you overload enough stress and then you want to let it recover from that stress and improve. And then again, you want to repeat that. So it's making sure you're going through that process over and over again versus a process of chronically loading higher, or lower, but never letting it get back to normal and go through that full process because people need to realize your body does not improve during the workout. The workout's catabolic, as you pointed out earlier. The workout is where you break your body down. The only time where it's actually improving is when it's devoting energy towards rebuilding and remodeling and repair. When, when that parasympathetic system is most active, that's where the fitness changes happen. So it happens outside the gym, in between workouts, we get better. And it's the same thing with skill, right? If we're practicing a skill, we don't get better the skill instantly while we're practicing it. We basically expose our body to a particular motor control demand, swinging a baseball, throwing a punch, hitting a golf ball, whatever the case may be. And then we go home and particularly when we sleep, our brain consolidates a lot of that motor programming, gets better at it. And we come back the next time to perform a skill and all of a sudden, boom, we're magically better, right? It's the same way. It really is the same thing. We, we have to give our bodies time to adapt and improve. And that's what the whole process of recovery is so is so crucial for. So again, if you're constantly overloading and not giving your body a chance to go through the full recovery process, you're just shortchanging your results. Like you put in the work to get better, you just didn't give yourself the time to do it. It, it just doesn't doesn't work with you when you don't have both sides of the equation put together.
0: Yeah, such a shame when somebody's doing that, just burying themselves. And I love what you said, and you've you've written about this too, which I love. It's like you do have to think critically about what you're going to do. If you have a low score day. Does that mean do nothing? Does that mean go easy? Or does that mean continue with your hard workout? You just need to think critically about it. If you know you're gonna get two or three days off after this day and the score is low, then it's like, yeah, you could probably get away with doing another hard workout. Just make sure that you take advantage of those recovery days at the end. And also, again, to say that, that a lower score is not telling you to do nothing. We would just, as trainers, always have like a B workout ready to go. And if you came in and you had a low score, um, guess what? Let's work on your core. Let's work on your mobility. Maybe we'll do some skill work if that's part of your plan, but we might not do the full, you know, workout that we had scheduled. Let's do the B workout instead, which was just easier. You can still do something.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, I mean, unless you just totally trash yourself, there's always benefits to movement, right? Movement is fundamental, not just to, stretching ourselves for training, but for recovery, because it's driving blood flow, it's driving immune function, it's driving all kinds of stuff. So, you know, what, regardless of kind of where your recovery is at, there's, there's ways that you can train. They just would be different. Like you said, rather than going, you know, and doing a really high intensity, you know, totally fatiguing workout, you go do what I call a recovery or rebound workout. You do some movement mobility, you get some blood flow in there, you can do some strength accessory work, some core work. You know, you, you, you can walk away from a workout feeling better than you started. And that's, you know, going to, be a benefit to your recovery. It just needs to be a different workout than if your your goal is the opposite of that. So yeah, really, like I said, that's why I kind of, the start, it, it just comes down to decision-making. All, all of fitness is literally how good are you at making the right decisions about volume, intensity, you know, exercises, nutrition, you know, sleep habits. It's It's just constantly making these little decisions and they add up over time. That's the biggest thing I can tell you too, is looking at a lot of data. It's a lot of things that you do on a daily basis that just add up. You know, it's just an accumulation and that's how it works. And, you know, they've looked at even like obesity, you know, people don't usually gain 50 pounds in a year. They gain like five pounds a year, eight pounds a year, 10 pounds a year. And over six years, you've gained 60 pounds. Like it's, it's the same thing with, with training. It's little changes. My body got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better in six months of that. You're way better or it got a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. Six months. Now you're injured. So it's these little changes that just accumulate over time from you know the big picture of of any aspect of training really
0: And that goes back to what you mentioned earlier as such a critical point. Like this is the learning point. Now look back on your day. You had a low day yesterday. What contributed to that? Was it a good idea to go on a bender the night before you're paying a trainer hundred dollars an hour to take you through a workout where you're, you were going to deadlift and now you're going to do, you know, flexibility work or something else. Like, like it's, it's using those opportunities to look back and see how you can change things over time. One of my most interesting findings is a client that I worked with that we found every single time without exception, the day after after he flew in a plane, his number would be very low, very, very low. And he, we could not give him the normal workout on that day. We had to adjust for that, We had to give him at least two days of recovery from just simply flying a plane, we would have never known that.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, when you, when you fly at, at altitude, you know, your cabin pressure is seven, 8,000 feet, sometimes, sometimes higher, lower, depending on the, the jet you're in. But you're also talking about traveling across different time zones and being away from home. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that, traveling and being in uh you know in that realm challenge your body and so yeah it takes energy for your body to adapt to that so again it's got less available for everything else and unless you're measuring hrv unless you're getting to know your body you wouldn't know that like i said you wouldn't you wouldn't just assume these things until you actually see them i would say alcohol and sleep are probably two other ones people don't people don't realize, like, oh, I'm just gonna have a couple of glass of wine. Like, okay, great. But have you actually seen how your body reacts to that? Like, just because you do it every night doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for you. So again, not not to, you know, people can make their own lifestyle decisions. I'm not going to tell somebody what they can or can't do. Just be aware of the repercussions and the consequences. Like if, if you do want to have, you know, a bunch of bad food and you want to drink every night and not going to sleep, like just recognize that you're paying the cost for that. And the cost for that is going to be poor performance and poor health in the long run. And that's your decision to make, but be aware that those little decisions you're making every day are leading you down that path. And that's, again, I think the most important thing is understanding where your body's at and understanding where your body's going is a crucial piece of, again, making sure that you understand what you're your decisions are going to do.
0: That's right. That that makes the data be so empowering for people to make those better decisions and just choose for themselves. I love that point. Um, okay. So we talked a little bit about micro level and how we're making better decisions. What about on a more like macro level, when we're looking at a, a bigger training cycle, maybe a month or a block of three months or something, how are we using HRV to help determine what we're doing and when we're doing it?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the biggest thing we're looking at you know, as we progress from week to week is that we're trending in the right direction, right? Like our fitness is actually improving and and we should see that, you know, on a weekly and monthly basis, you know, if we're the higher level of fitness, we go, obviously the slower those changes happen, but we still see something showing us, Hey, we're getting better. Now HRV itself, when you look at like a daily average over time is correlated very, very highly with aerobic fitness, same thing with resting heart rate. So we want to look at the general direction of these, of both of those markers. If we're, you know, week by week, seeing our HRV increase, and week by week, we're seeing our resting heart rate decrease. It tells us our aerobic system is improving. It tells us overall we're adapting in a very positive direction. Now, if our goal is, let's say, purely strength or our goal is purely physique, we don't care as much about the aerobic side. We at least don't want to see a decrease. If we see a decrease in these numbers over time, it means like what, what you're doing is probably not even maintaining your fitness, it's probably getting somewhat worse. So we just use them as general guidelines and say okay is our fitness improving the direction we want it to go or do we need upper load or down the load and decrease load what, what do we need to do to, to make change that we don't see it so if if you're not improving there's a reason for it. you want to figure out why and make changes accordingly so it's it's really just you know it's a good gauge to say are we heading the right direction and the reality is if you make smart decisions on a daily basis you will head the right direction if you're not making those decisions effectively, you're not recovering effectively, or you're not loading yourself as much as you need to, and you won't see it improve. So it's, it's, it's able to answer kind of those two big pictures. What should I do today? And did I make the right decision? And, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, from the short and the long-term, it gives you this, this dynamic picture of, of where you're going.
0: Yeah, perfect. I think this part of things is so cool. The application, not just to one individual, but a group of individuals. We mentioned some of the leagues that you're working with. And and I, I just think there, there's just endless ways you could use HRV as a tool to, to help drive performance in a team. Can you talk about what that experience has been like?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest thing with teams is, is especially the higher up the lie you go. You know, players performance in a single game can be worth a win or a loss, which can be worth, you know, an endless make the playoff, don't make the playoffs. I mean, individual performances across the season are such a crucial piece of teams performing well at the end of the season, making the playoffs, winning championships or not doing those things. So, you know, teams have a very vested interest, obviously, in player management. And there's definitely been a push, I would say, in the last, you know, five, 10 years to really focus more on player health and player longevity and player Uh, performance across the season. You see guys in NBA being able to sit out and rest games. You see guys in training camp the NFL, they're older, being able to take days off even in training camp. I mean, you see these athletes performing longer and you see the coaches being more receptive to giving them the individual time they need. So, you know, HRV and GPS data and heart rate data, different teams use it very differently, I would say. Some teams are much more data-centric than others, but you typically see you know the younger coaches in the league being more receptive to using the data than some of the older, more you know kind of traditional coaches who coach based on just you know how they think the team should be coached. Um, but in general, I'd say we've we've definitely moved in a direction where this has become a part of most teams. Most, most teams have a performance director who has you know insight in the broad picture. They're looking at medical data. They're looking at some sort of uh, testing battery they do, whether it's it's uh, HRV or something else, GPS data is in a lot of a lot of teams now. So. Teams are all taking this high approach and they're still, you know, sorting out how they're going to use it. But, you know, like I said, I think if you if you just look casually, you'll definitely see more teams giving more players individual rev- rests. You know, this player is going to take today off because he needs a rest day and the rest team's going to go on as normal. And you didn't used to see that. You know, you didn't used to see teams give players preferential or differential treatment in practice and rest and recovery. And you've just seen that, I think, a lot more, like particularly in the NBA. And that just speaks to the fact that I think people are waking up to if you want a player to play the last from game one to the end of the season, you know it, it's again a, a need for intelligent deliberate rest and recovery is part of that so i, I think it's uh, it's a good thing and i think it'll keep going that direction
0: yeah no i totally agree um it, it i'm glad they're progressing in that way i understand that fans of basketball if you're paying you know whatever you're paying to go to a game you want to see the star players so i understand yep. the pressure to be in every game but i'm also understanding it, it's probably just not possible i you know i think of basketball you generally know who the top five is going to be and who you're going to sub in and out although hrv could drive those decisions um hockey you kind of know your role in the same three lines with a fourth line every now and again and those same guys are going to roll i thought and the, the cool application would be the mls where you can maybe based on hrv know which striker is going to have the best chance to, to be on the pitch for 90 minutes and which striker maybe looks like he's going to gas out a minute 60 and that's going to cost us a substitution the, those kind of applications i think are fantastic
1: yeah i mean unsurprisingly the the european soccer leagues were really the first to really embrace HRP on a, on a team wide scale. They've been doing it for 10, 15 years now. Um, and again, it varies on how each team uses it, but they were really the first to adopt that and uh, begin with. And they, they were also the first to use it was called pro This is a, a, an older software where they take video of the entire game. They'd map out each player's movements and they would try to calculate the the game load. So the Europeans have invested a lot, a lot of money into it, uh, but it's happened in the U S too. There there's a great strength coach, uh who's now a performance director, I believe Dave Tenney was at the Seattle Sounders and I was here. He he actually brought his athletes uh, very early on in HRV when I was using it to into my gym and wanted to measure them and kind of get a feel for what HRV was and was doing. And then he ended up essentially creating this big model of of game load and training load around a bunch of different metrics, including HRV that he was looking at his his goal was basically to look at you know injury uh, risk from a given you know day and a given player. Because again, injuries are everything. If your if your top player gets hurt, I mean, that is going to cost you games. Even if your your two or three of your less lesser uh, top players get hurt, that's a massive blow. So he would essentially be able to give the coach a daily breakdown of injury risk of different players. You know, which is kind of inverse of optimal playing, but it's 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 the opposite. So you know, he was extremely successful with doing that. He moved to some other teams, and I'm not sure where he's at right now. But he was really the best in the the MLS at taking all this data aggregated into a risk management profile and then making sure the coach understood that from a daily basis. And the the way he did it was really smart. He would give coaches a, you know, a game load. He'd look at, okay, what is, what does a game load look like in each athlete? And then he could model that for each practice. So he'd say, oh, yesterday's practice was about 70% game load on the team or yesterday's practice was an 80% game load on the team because the coaches know the stress of the game. And if you can give them something they understand back to a practice level with that same metric, it was much, you know, more digestible for the coaching staff. To be, oh, okay. I, you know, I get it. So a lot of this really just kind of comes down to, you know, again, the team itself, the head coach, how invested he or she is in the technology. But uh yeah, it's it's a big part of performance and I don't see it going anywhere.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I've always been surprised. You kind of look at these guys, professional athletes, and you just kind of assume they already know all of this stuff. They know how to recover. They know how to exercise properly. They know how to eat. I've, I've done testing work with some of the people on here at Real Salt Lake, younger athletes. It's been a few years, but like you start to listen to what they're eating in their diets and it's like cups and cups of <laughs> sugar and like orange juice and cereal before like your practice, like whoa, Like, what are you doing? No wonder you're gassing out so early. Like, yeah, you can get away with this now when you're 20. Do you want to keep playing when you're like 35? Like that's going to come back to bite you in the butt. And all of this technology is, is so is so cool to help people understand that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it is funny. If if you're not ever in the world of professional sports, you do exactly what you just said. You just assume that these guys or or women are the best of the best and they're getting nutrition dialed in and they're sleeping, you know, eight or eight and a half hours a night and they're doing relaxation and they're doing all this regeneration stuff. And like, no, like the reality is they're just people. The The unfortunate part of it, I mean, not unfortunate, but the, the, the reality is the most talented athletes have always been the most talented athletes. They came up from the lowest level, just dominating everybody. And they didn't have to necessarily dial these things in when they were teenagers they were just teenagers and they'd go out and they'd run for a thousand yards and it didn't matter what they would do and they'd just been that much further ahead of everybody else you know genetically and just talent wise that they haven't had to do a lot of those things in their entire careers i mean there are there are people in the nfl that would be the most people would be amazed never lift weights never train like they just are that good and you until you're around it and you see it if you wouldn't believe it but when i was with the seahawks many many years ago uh you know there were players you know who were winning uh nfl mvp or one player i should say won an nfl mvp and i never saw him lift weights i don't think he ever did lift weights wow. but he was just that good wow. and you know you might pay your you might pay the price for that later in your career you know there's there's notorious stories like ken griffey jr that guy never did anything but hit baseballs and was one of the greatest players of all time i mean And You know, again, I think it's unfortunate the standpoint that it doesn't necessarily set them up for longevity because it's usually not until they get hurt and their career starts to decline. They realize all these things they could have been doing. And then you look at someone like Tom Brady, who's obviously been doing all these things his entire career. And that's why he's doing what he's doing now, because he's paid attention to all these aspects, you know, probably uh, for as long as he's been playing the sport because he's he's so, uh, you know, disciplined and thought out and competitive about how he takes care of himself and everyone around him. So, You know, again, it's, if people knew that what some of these athletes do, uh, their, their minds would be pretty blown, but again, they, they can get away with it, you know, at least for a while.
0: Yeah. Great point. So what have we missed about HRV? Is there any other applications that have maybe surprised you or things where HRV is sneaking in and is helping other industries or again, other applications of HRV?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's lots. I think, look, they they use it somewhat for looking at prognosis from cardio, how well you're going to be able to handle a a cardiovascular surgery. So it's definitely still used in medicine in different circles. Um, It's used to look at like PTSD and brain injuries and all these sorts of things to understand how much, you know, how much of a stress that put on the brain and whether or not that's it's recovering from that. Um, We can see one thing I think is interesting is people with higher HRV levels are generally more likely to resist eating poor foods. Um, the, the HRV itself is co-located in area of the brain that's associated with self-restraint. And when it comes to decision-making, so people that are higher HRV are generally speaking, going to be able to be more likely to follow a diet or more likely to, you know, stick with training. they just tend to have the ability to have greater self-restraint when it comes to making decisions. So some of that could just be the process it takes to drive HRV up. And some of that could just be the HRV being higher itself. Um, but HRV is like I like a single metric. It's so multifaceted it correlates well with overall longevity and life expectancy correlates with body fat percentages and all these sorts of things. So, you know, the average person whose goal is just to live a longer, you know, happier, healthier life, free of disease, you know, driving your HRV up higher, uh, towards the end of your you know, top end of norms or, or above norms is going to be a really good thing. I mean, there's, there's a paper not too long ago that showed it, it correlated really well in older populations and their likelihood of extreme sickness or, or dying from COVID. So if you're, if you're older, you know, higher HRV was, was preventative and protective. If you're younger, it made less of a difference because there wasn't as much of that to begin with. Um, but it, it's just a, such a, it's such a good marker to, to have as a, you know, single metric of how healthy am I, how resilient to stress am I? And if the number is higher and you're above your age norms, you know, you're going to be less likely to get diseases. You're be more likely to live healthier. And then the same thing goes for performance, you know? So it's, it's a really valuable marker. I don't care what your goal is. You might, you might just want to live healthy, long life. Or you might want to make the team or go pro or win super bowls, whatever the case may be, there's, there's value in, in tracking it.
0: It's all relevant. Yeah. I love that. What do you guys have in the pipeline over at Morpheus?
1: So lots of stuff. And you know, we have, you know, for, for those of you who are coaches, that was this, we have a coaching platform that will take all the HRV data, take activity, recovery, sleep, all these sorts of things. And then allow you to access it so you can see what your clients are doing or, or not doing when they're not with you. And you can help them down that process of smart decision-making. But what we're also adding in now is the training side of this. So we're adding in interval training that's based on your recovery. So one thing that Morpheus does that's completely unique is we don't just give you HIV recovery score, but we adjust your heart rate zones to manage your intensity each day's results. So we take that data and create three personalized heart rate zones, a blue zone for recovery, uh, a green zone where you're going to spend most time for conditioning and the red zone, which is your high intensity or overload zone. But those adapt to you each day based on your recovery with Morpheus. So what we're doing now is building in an interval builder, essentially into Morpheus, where you'll be able to select from what I call zone-based interval training, uh, zone-based intervals. So we have a variety of those, and you'll be able to essentially go through interval workouts that are specific to you on each day based on where your recovery is at. So we really want to go down this roadmap of making Morpheus less about HRV, not less about it, but translating X to say HRV into a training program on a daily basis, weekly basis, and so on. So that's why I have an eight week conditioning program called metamorphosis, uh, which takes the Morpheus data and helps you uh, guide you essentially through an eight week training program. And that's really where we're going to be focusing our efforts is, is again, expanding out the training piece of Morpheus and really making it the best heart rate platform out there that's powered by recovery. So uh, lots of exciting stuff and we're going to be launching that new feature here pretty soon. So I uh, can't wait to get that out there.
0: That's amazing. No surprise that you guys would be pushing the envelope of everything that we said in the introduction, using solid science to make something that's very practical and usable that people can understand. I really do appreciate that. Joel Jamison, where can people go to find you to connect with you and your work?
1: Sure. Easiest place is eightweeksout.com, number eightweeksout.com. Uh, you can get link to Morpheus from there. If you want to go directly to Morpheus, it would be trainwithmorpheus.com. Uh, and then Instagram, probably the best of the uh, the social media. Just uh, Coach Joel Jamison, J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N on the old IG. And between those three, you'll find videos, masterclasses, articles, you know, kind of the whole, whole nine yards.
0: You guys do put out a ton of content, and it's really helpful. And so is the book. Again, The Ultimate Guide to HRV, I think, is wonderful. Um, I've had it, again, what was it, 10 years ago you wrote it?
1: It's been... At least. Yeah, I think 2012. Yeah, probably about 10 years. Yeah,
0: it's still enjoyable. I don't have very many training books. And that's one that I've kept. And and again, related to HRV or not, there's a lot of really good, solid principles in there. And again, you guys are just bringing the best content. And we just so much appreciate how you're able to meld the technology and the science with something that's very practical. So Joe Jamison, thank you so very much for all of your work and everything that you do. And thank you for taking time out of your very busy life to come be on our show today. We really appreciate you.
1: Yeah, no problem. Happy to come on and uh, hope Hopefully listeners are excited to go start looking at their HRV in uh, new and different ways. So thanks again for having me and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Awesome. That
0: sounds great. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form, very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Boundless body radio premium podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to boundless body radio.